Judges chapter 3. So you guys know, uh, you know, if you've been around our church for a little while, uh, you've certainly heard enough of my sermons, and you kind of know how I normally start. I normally start the sermon with, you know, something that will try and make a connection between the text and the listener. I know that we all have a lot going on in our hearts and in our minds when we show up on a Sunday morning, and we want to take time to start in a way that will, will get your attention. Well, this text doesn't really need any help getting our attention, does it? Um, it doesn't so much need an introduction as much as I feel it needs a parental warning, you know? It's this covert assassination layered with this lurid description of visceral violence topped off with some bathroom humor. I mean, think about it. If you walked in and your kids were watching this movie, you would turn it off. Turn, you know, turn that thing off. Or even here in the church, I guarantee you, friends, they have not flannel graphed this one, okay? <laughs> or can you imagine, you know, you go and pick up your kid this morning, and they're like, I did a picture, right? You're like, it's the king just after he died, you know, and you're kind of like, you wouldn't come back, right? You know? What is this doing in the Bible? Would we be better off focusing on a New Testament passage and, and focusing on Jesus? We say no. We say a thousand no's. Why? Because we're going to focus on this Old Testament passage and focus our hearts upon Jesus. Two things that we're going to see in this text, one from King Eglon and the second from the Deliverer Ehud. First of all, from King Eglon, we get insight into how sin works insight into how sin works. Let's look at this together. Picking up in verse 12 with me, we see that the Israelites again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The land has had rest for 40 years, but now their leader dies, and with his death come new expressions of disobedience, new expressions of rebellion. In verses 12 through 14, the Lord acts, sending them into oppression. Why? To wake them up that they might, in fact, return to him. Now, what form does this oppression take? We read that it takes the form, strangely, of some fat Moabites. First of all, their fat king. Look in verse 17. He presented the tribute. Ehud presented the tribute to the king of Eglon. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. But it isn't just the king who's fat. If you look down at verse 29, we see that the rest of the Moabites are fat as well. The word that's translated there, do you see, they killed at that time 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. The word there, strong, is, is literally the word fat. Perhaps because it's dealing with warriors, they translate it as, as strong here. But I, I think a better translation would be fat, powerful men. The king is fat and the followers are fat. The Moabites have an obesity problem. Now, here in these United States of America, we understand that, right? Uh, per capita, the most obese nation in the world. Do you know the second most obese nation in the world? This is great. Scotland! <laughs> Our great nations unite over pizza, you know? Who knew? So we, under, we understand this. But what does this obesity have to do with oppression? Important for us to understand that the Bible here is not descending into some just cruel name-calling, the kind of thing you'd hear in the playground. 
Nor is this fixation with weight the expression of some kind of juvenile sense of humor. It's not just there to add color, to to add and get a laugh. No, the key word to help us understand this is in verse 15. Do you see the word tribute there? It was common for a conquered people to bring payments to the conquering king to bring tributes to the conquering king. Now, the king would accept all kinds of different payments. He'd accept silver, he'd accept gold, he'd accept cattle or sheep, he'd accept, you know, Visa, MasterCard, American Express, he'd accept whatever the people brought him. But the Israelites didn't bring him any of those things. What they did was bring tribute. And a word here that's often translated as, as grain. It's used right throughout Leviticus and all the way through Numbers to describe the kind of grain offerings that the Israelites were meant to bring to whom? To God. To describe the kind of grain offerings that they were to give to the Lord. So the irony here would not be lost on the original readers. That what had been intended for God is now being offered to this king and to his hordes. The Moabites here are getting fat off what should have been God's. And what are the Moabites doing in response? What do they give Israel in exchange for this? Slavery, domination, cruel oppression. Here's the point. Here's how sin works. Sin, it it offers so much, but then it takes everything you have in exchange for oppression. It offers you so much, there's an allure to it, but it ends up taking everything you have in exchange for oppression. When we reject God and give to others what belongs to him alone, we find that our sin always ends up oppressing us. This is why Paul will say in Romans that we are under sin, or later in Romans, that we are slaves to sin. Thinking about this uh, this week, my mind went to Lance Armstrong. You remember his story? cancer survivor who won and then was stripped of seven Tour de France titles. He says that his healthy competitive spirit turned into a ruthless desire to win. He sought meaning. He sought significance. He sought purpose in victory, not in the Lord. And it ended up destroying his life. It took him to to drug use. Took him to a huge cover-up, to lie after lie after lie, to, to bullying and broken relationships and a failed marriage and a disgraced reputation. It offered him so much, there was this allure to it. But in the end, it took everything he had in exchange for oppression. I think the sad reality is, this morning, for all of us, certainly for me, that we've experienced this in one way or another. Do you know what it is for you? Do you know what what sins have had or still have a power over your life? What are those things that you spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about? What are those things that you spend a disproportionate amount of, of money on? What are those things that make your life worth living, those things that you can't simply imagine living without? What are those good pleasures, be it sex or or alcohol, that you've started to abuse? What are those things that will cause you to neglect your family or or other priorities? What are those things that you'll drop everything for? What are those things that get your emotions all out of whack? You become anxious and, and, and angry and defensive. We know this morning, right? We, we know that whatever it is, whatever sin we've allowed to have hold in our lives, any sin that has power in our lives, we know that ultimately it will make us miserable. Right? 
that while there's an allure to it just now, no one was ultimately ever happy because they rejected God. Sin is like the fat king Eglon, a gruel, greedy, a cruel and greedy slave master whose, whose wages are death. Sin over-promises and under-delivers every single time. We think it will make us happy, and in the end, it never does. And I wonder this morning, perhaps God is calling us as a church or, or calling us individually to, to hear some of the specific things that he's put on our hearts. When I ask, what are those sins that have power in your life? Do you know instantly? Is there something that your mind can very quickly go to that you recognize has, has that kind of power? And if that, if that is you, I wonder what it will take for you to flee from it and, re- and return to God. Because, sure, it might be being found out like Lance Armstrong. Or it might be 18 years of oppression like the Israelites. But wouldn't it be better if we just returned th- in, in this moment? The Lord loves his people in a feisty way. We spoke about this last week, and he's prepared to do what it takes in order for him to call his children home. And I tend to be unfortunately hard-headed. I kind of need to go through these things often before I do. But wouldn't it be better if we just returned with the whispers of grace that he gives us this morning? That he's ready to receive you this morning without being found out and without 18 years of oppression that whatever you've done be it small or spectacular he's in the business of welcoming us home sin has such an allure but ends up taking everything you have in exchange for oppression and so we want to run from it returning to the grace of god that's the first thing we see then in this passage Second thing, having seen how sin works in the life of Eglon, our passage goes on to show us how God works in the life of Ehud. How God works. Let's pick up in verse 15 and uh, march right through this uh, amazing uh, section. In verse 15, the Israelites eventually see their oppression, they see their need of deliverance, and they cry out to the Lord. And God, who is the God of grace, does what he always does Every time someone comes to him for help, which is hear and act upon it. And so, in verse 15, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Now, it's at this point that something unexpected happens. Follow along. We read this deliverer was the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, this last detail that he was left-handed would have been very surprising to the original readers, and, and not just because, you know, most people are right-handed. How many lefties do we have this morning? Okay, great. There's always a few. I love how lefties are proud of being left-handed, right? And I love how right-handed people, um, like if I'm with someone and they start writing with their left hand, I'll comment on that. You know, oh, you're left-handed. They would never say to me, oh, you're right-handed. You know, there's just sort of something unusual about it. You kind of, you kind of notice it. That's, that's not why the original readers would have been surprised. Two reasons they'd have been surprised. First of all, because the right hand was the hand that you fought with, the right hand was the hand with which you held your sword. In the Bible, the right hand becomes a symbol for power or a symbol for ability. So we think of the Lord who swears by his right hand. He says that pleasures forevermore are found where? At his right hand. That his Holy One sits where? At his right hand. That the right hand is the one that you would associate with deliverance. 
A second reason the original readers would have been surprised is a little less obvious to us, but it comes in the fact that the word used here in verse 15 literally doesn't say that he was left-handed. Literally, it says that he was unable to use his right hand. So literally, it doesn't say, you know, Ehud was, was left-handed. Literally, it says Ehud was unable to use his right, his right hand. So he wasn't naturally left-handed. He had some weakness, some limitation, some disability that prevented him from using his right hand so that he was left-handed by default. Now, you can imagine in a society like theirs, the notion that such a person could bring military deliverance was laughable. That guy, this cripple, the guy that can't even shake your hand, let alone wield a sword, he's the guy that's going to bring us deliverance. That does not seem very likely to us. No one would have chosen to follow him, but he's God's choice. He's God's choice, which takes us to how God works. How does God work? Not in spite of weakness, but through weakness. That's how God works. Not in spite of weakness, but actually through weakness. Let's see this in, in, in the story, story of Ehud. As we'll see it's that it's actually because of his limitations, because of his weakness, through those very things that deliverance comes. In verses 16 and 17, he fashions this lethal weapon, razor sharp on both sides, about 18 inches long. He straps it to his right thigh as a lefty would so that he can get to it quickly but also enter the king's presence undetected. Once there, he pays tribute to the king and he starts to assess the situation. Do I have an opportunity here to strike? Standing before the king with all the servants surrounding them, perhaps with a bead of sweat on his forehead, he realizes that the time is not now. This is in fact not the moment. And so in verses 18 and 19, he comes up with another plan. He leaves with the rest of his party, but then he returns to the king alone. And he tells the king, I have a special message for you from God. Yeah, it's quite a message he's about to bring from God. Hearing this, the king gets excited and and dismisses his servants, all of whom leave without a second thought. Why? Because they assume that if this man can't fight with his right hand, he can't fight at all. That he poses no threat, no danger to their security. In verses 20 through 22, after quite fast-paced action, the camera slips into slow motion. We read that Ehud, with his sword still hidden on the wrong side, approaches the king. That this obese king stands to his feet. That Ehud stretches out his left hand, goes over to his right thigh, takes the sword and plunges it into the recesses of the king's gut. We read that the entire sword is enveloped by the king's girth, sealing his fate as his bowels give way. Now, the bathroom scene that that follows is not sort of some um, cheap attempt at shock value. The writer of Judges isn't thinking, you know, how can I increase ratings? Let's add something graphic here. Rather, it's designed to show us something significant. It's designed to show us how Ehud makes his escape. So in verses 23 and 25, Ehud leaves the room and he locks the doors behind him. Eventually, the servants come to check on the king and seeing that the doors are locked and and doubtless using their noses, they conclude that the king is still in the bathroom. 
So they stand there awkwardly, shifting from foot to foot, looking to the sky. Uh, one of them finally saying, well, how long has he been in there? And they wait, how long? Don't you love this that it says this? They wait till they, till they were embarrassed, verse 25. They wait till they think, man, it's so awkward standing out here, it's better to go in, right? Let's go and find out what has happened to this king. Why are we told all these details? Because of verse 26. Ehud escaped while they delayed. In verses 27 through 30, he rounds up the troops and the rest, as they say, is history. And so what appears to be this brutal and disgusting tale of violence actually turns out to be this theological drama where God's enemies get the judgment that they deserve and God's children get the deliverance they don't deserve. How? Through this weak, left-handed deliverer. This is how God works, not in spite of weakness, but through it. Two very quick closing applications. First of all, of course, in this principle, we need to see how it points us to Jesus. That if the left hand was weak, the cross was even weaker. And the Bible celebrates the fact that the salvation that is ours, bought for us by Christ, has come through weakness. That like Ehud, Jesus delivered his people, not in spite of weakness, but through it. Delivered us through the crushing defeat of death, not through triumphant victory. When men come in weakness, we don't expect deliverance. It's surprising to us. It's shocking even. But God's strength is, is made perfect in such weakness. And Ehud, the weakness of Ehud brought 80 years of rest to the land. The weakness of the cross brings eternal rest to those who have faith in him. The secondary application of this principle is that having seen it in Ehud, having understood it in Christ, through Christ, we then also need to see how this principle should be present in our own lives. How we should be conscious that God doesn't work in spite of weakness, but, but through it. See, we live in a culture, and particularly in a town, that doesn't celebrate weakness. We live in a culture and a town that celebrates strength and power and success. But the Bible suggests that if we're to be used in, in God's economy, we have to celebrate our weakness. How does celebrating our weakness make us more useful? I have seven reasons here that I'm going to have to put on our blog. I don't have time to go through them just now. So in lieu of that, though, let me close with one picture. One picture to help us get our arms around this. And it comes, uh, unfortunately, not from uh, great reading, not from great uh, prayer and meditation, but from Facebook. Um, so forgive me. But I came across this video on, on Facebook this week, uh, which is really, really interesting and kind of gets at what I'm, what I'm driving at here. Um, opens up when you see this man really nicely dressed in a nice suit uh, on crutches making his way down a New York street. I don't know if you saw this video this week. Uh, he's walking along, just, just, you know, making his way down the road, and then suddenly he trips and he falls and he crashes and just eats the pavement. And the second he does, what happens? Several people come running to, to, to help him. The scene fades out, fades back in, and you see him walking down the street again, and you realize, oh, okay, that, he's up to something. This is an experiment of some sort. Takes a few more steps, and then down he goes, crashes onto the pavement. What happens? Several people come running, running to help him. We see this a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, again and again and again. He crashes down, and people come running to help him. Scene fades out, new scene comes up. What do we see now? We see a homeless man carrying all sorts of bags 
on crutches, walking down the same New York street. He takes a few steps, he trips and he stumbles and he crashes onto the concrete and you know what happens. No one comes to help him. And the response of, of people is very interesting. Some people, some people carried on like, like nothing had happened. They stare straight ahead and just act like this didn't happen. Some people gave a kind of furtive glance and, and gave the man a wide berth. Other people just watched tentatively from afar. And so the scene is repeated a second, a third, fourth, fifth time, again and again and again. He goes crashing to the pavement and no one comes to help him. Until when? Until he makes that fall and crashes to the ground in front of a homeless man. Who does what? Jumps up, <laughs> comes to his aid, helps him back on his feet, passes him a bag, and he carries on down his way. God doesn't work in spite of weakness. He works through it. And what a great picture that homeless man is for how our church should be. Not a people who have it all together, even if they are wearing a suit, but a people of of sinful, broken, hurting people who have been met powerfully by an experience of grace in Jesus Christ so that we don't think we're above helping anybody. If you only help people lower than yourself, We understand as Christians, that would mean there'd be no one to help. Conversely, if we help people as broken as we are, we recognize there's everyone to help. Luther said, beggars, that's what we are. Beggars, showing other beggars where to find bread. The bread that we ourselves have found. This passage is wild. It's unruly. Um, It's colorful. God created us, and he knows how to communicate to us. And in it, he shows us how sin works. It might have an allure, it might have an appeal, but it will take everything you have, and it will only oppress you. Return to his grace today, but it also shows us how God works. Not in spite of weakness, but through it. In Ehud, in the cross, and also in us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in reflecting on the gospel, there is such delight. Delight in the details of this story. Um, You wouldn't think you'd find such things in the Bible. You wouldn't think you'd talk about such things in church, but you surprise us again and again. But beyond the details, Lord, delight in the content. The sovereign God who takes his rebellious children works in their lives so that they will return to him, receiving grace full and free. That is our story this morning. We are a people who have been saved uh, through weakness, not the weakness of Ehud, but the weakness of the cross. Uh, We thank you for that great reality and ask that you would enable us to see uh, more and more how you will use us if we will come to you, not in strength, not with pomp, not with ceremony, uh, but in our own brokenness and to be used by you. These things we pray in uh, the happy name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and sing our song of sending.
Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. There's a little pause in here. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving ceases.
may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with each and every one of you now and evermore. Amen. 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 Go now rejoicing in the love of Christ, your risen Savior. We go go in hope, bringing you our life and our strength. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah.